I'm going to be reading from um, John 4, 16 through 30, and then John 4, um, 39 through 42. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you had five husbands. The one, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in, Jeru in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? When they went out of the town and were coming, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thanks, Johanna. This is the longest conversation uh, that we have recorded between Jesus and one other person, John chapter 4. We looked last week at verses 1 through 15 when the uh, woman was asking a lot of questions, and now the, the conversation has progressed, so they're saying things to one another that are opening up the dialogue further and further and further. And this woman was perceived as very, very broken. And what I mean by that is to have had five husbands in that culture, there's a lot to say about this, um, but peop we don't know if they died or if they were divorced, we do know she probably didn't divorce them because she isn't a woman of means. She, ha she has her own uh, water vessel. That's how we learn she's not super rich. Um, and what people would have assumed was e if they died or if she was divorced that much, something was wrong. And they didn't necessarily mean like she was mean or naggy. They might have thought like something spiritual was wrong that we can't even define. But they would have thought she was broken. But if you've ever read John chapter 4, if you were listening to Johanna, she read, Jesus doesn't perceive her that way. He doesn't interact with her that way. He doesn't respond to her questions that way. 
He doesn't speak with her that way. He speaks with her with, dig with dignity and respect. He listened to her. I remember when I was in college, um, some of the Christian groups that I was a part of, it, it, it seemed hip to talk about uh, what you wanted in a spouse. I don't know if this is still a thing. I don't know if it was misguided. I haven't thought a ton about it, but till this week when I was preparing the sermon. And they would mention, you know, something about physical looks, something about spirituality, and then they'd say they need to come from a good family. And I remember I'm 19, 20 years old, and I'm like, well, I'm out. And it, because what they meant was their, and what they would sometimes say specifically was their parents have to still be together. And I'm like, wow. So however many of you share that belief, like I don't, we don't get to date, which for some of them was fine, for others it made me sad, right? And people didn't mean anything judgmental by that when they were making lists, though I'm not at all sure that's how we should do that. But it made me feel like things totally outside of my control made me less than. And here's Jesus. The longest conversation we have recorded of him with another human being is one who was judged, rightly or wrongly. We don't know. John doesn't tell us whether she had anything to do with the divorces or whether the men died. But it's clear that she would have been judged, and yet he doesn't treat her that way. Um, if verse 16 seems a little jolting to you, seems like, Jesus, is this really where you're going to use your God powers, like to tell the woman, like all of her story? It might be because um, she's making it clear that she's not married, wondering if that's why Jesus came to the well. So if we think about it in that context, right, if you look back at verse 15, sir, give me this water, and then Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. The woman said, I have no husband. At that moment, she might have been communicating with him who knows what her desire were, but th that she wasn't married in order to see if he was interested in that. If we take it in that context, then we realize it's not harsh. He's gently, and the reason I say gently is they keep talking. He's gently telling her that's not what we're going to talk most about. We're going to talk about me, who I am. This is Jesus speaking. This is a gentle use of his power to guide the conversation back to other things. And I I want to say this. Um, what, I, what I found beautiful about this conversation as I wrestled with it the last couple of weeks is how they continue to respond to one another, both the woman and Jesus, in ways where they get to learn more and talk about more things. Neither of them appears defensive. Neither of them uh, seems offended or upset. Um, the, way my <laughs> the way my wife and I have sort of tried to cultivate this in our own relationship is to simply say, say more words. Because you know how it goes. You say something to a good friend or parent or spouse or your child, and suddenly it's all defensive. And we see that defensiveness coming up in ourselves. And I might encourage you to adopt this really brilliant phrase. Sometimes it's say more things instead of to respond in defensiveness. Because in relationships, we long to know more about the other one. We long to communicate as clearly as possible and I love this about Jesus and this woman. Non-defensively, non-threatening. They're, they're saying non-leading things to one another because their goal is not to accomplish something but to converse. When she says, I perceive you are a prophet, that's not only because he knew about her history, that's also a statement that Jesus might be right about worship 
um, as a Jewish man. And I, I think this is remarkable from this woman. After Jesus tells her about her own story, she doesn't seem defensive. She's more open to hearing from him. Perhaps because of the display of mental God power. I'm not exactly sure what we should call that. But it's fascinating because if he is a prophet, that means the Samaritans are at least partly wrong about the way that they worship. So she's open. So this honest conversation leads to conviction. And I want you to hang on, I want you to set aside the word conviction for just a second in the way we normally define it because I don't think this was about any kind of moral conviction. And the reason I say that is after verse 16, they don't talk about it anymore. But I do think there was a conviction. I think this is a strong, confident woman. You know why? Because she kept talking to Jesus. She kept saying things with confidence. She kept saying things non-defensively. She didn't ask him any leading questions. And she responds to him repeatedly. I kind of wonder if that culture couldn't handle her strength and her confidence. I have another reason to think that too. I'll get to it in a second. Kind of wonder if the men didn't know how to relate to her that were married to her, although we don't know if they died or if they were divorced. And this strong, confident woman meets Jesus, and you and I learn so much because she hung in there, and so did he. I think the conviction she senses is about the human face and tone of voice of the real Jesus, that the living water that he offers, she desperately needed. That's her conviction. I think she's beginning to drink of the living water of faith, which is the inner peace that we receive from the work of Christ. And I think she's beginning to drink the living water of the wisdom and daily life of Christ. And somehow she's convicted, as far as we can tell, from a lot of verses, without any shame. Do you sense that? Whatever you have done or not done, whatever's happened to you, whatever you understand or you don't understand, you know that the love of God, the face of Jesus, the voice of Jesus is one that can convict you of your need for him without any shame. I hope that you do. That is hard for me to believe humanly. And yet we have this long conversation with a woman that everyone would have judged as very broken. And here's Jesus dignifying and listening and saying more words and having her say more words in return. It leads to conviction into evangelism. Do you, have you looked at the list in John chapter 4 of the things we know about Jesus and about God and the Trinity because of this woman? Because she kept talking? Because she asked such good questions? We know that the offer of Christ is like living water. Water that never runs dry because it's, it's a stream. We know that true worship can happen anywhere. Not on the mountain that they could see from where they were at the well, which is the mountain that the Samaritans worshiped at. It doesn't need to be in Jerusalem. That's important. That's old hat to us in the West, but the location does not increase the power of the worship. You can worship anywhere. We know more about the Trinity because of this woman. God is spirit. We know that God is a pursuing father going around the earth 
calling people to himself in love because of this conversation. We know that he's the Messiah. We know it's for all people, men and women, Jews and Samaritans. That's why the disciples are so shocked. They didn't know that, but we do because of Jesus talking to this woman. Do you know how to tell your story in light of Jesus' pursuit of you? Regardless of whether your story is more like a James Bond story or a Hallmark movie, do you know how to explain? And I know it's probably in between, right? Most of us are probably in between those two extremes. Even in that moment, it had been 20 minutes since she met Jesus that she started telling people about him. She was telling them in, in light of her own story. I wonder if you know how to do that. You could make a case that this is the first missionary of the way, the first missionary of the Christian religion. And let's be honest, if you introduce me to this woman after church and you tell me her story and you ask me if she can preach, am I going to let her? And yet here she is, leaving a conversation with Jesus and telling her whole town about him and asking them to join her in asking the question, could he be the Messiah? And this is even more remarkable if we look at John chapter 2 and John chapter 3 and the people that shared Jesus' beliefs about God not hearing him as clearly as this woman and in this town. I'll say a couple words about evangelism. Evangelism always starts with friendship, always. You know, I thought for decades that a seat next to someone on an airplane was a spectacular place to evangelize. You know why it's not? Those of you laughing do instinctively. I didn't for a long time. I do now. I didn't for a long time. The reason it's not is they have to sit by you. Unless you get so obnoxious, this maybe has happened to me, that they ask the steward or the stewardess to let you go somewhere else or for them to go somewhere else. Now, does that mean that you should never share your faith when you have to sit next to someone? Of course not. But what you're looking for in that moment is a connection point that's actual friendship, which is pretty hard to get to on a plane. The one time that I was, that it seemed like I was successful, it turned out that the woman had a crush on me. This was before I was married. And it seemed like we made some headway in terms of talking about Jesus. And then, you know, the emails started coming and they weren't as much about him. Evangelism begins with friendship. And it moves into conversation and conviction, not about morals, but about Jesus and his offer of living water. And then it oftentimes, that would be step one. And then it oftentimes involves a moment of unsettledness in your friend's life. And let me be real clear about that. That's not your opportunity to then say. It's your opportunity to then go and continue to be their friend. They know what you believe. And you continue to friend them well. And... Perhaps in that moment, they'll want to ask you different questions than they asked in the past. But it's always interconnected with friendship. And then it involves your story. I'm getting all this from the woman saying, come with me. But it involves your story. 
You know, one of the one of the more interesting long conversations that I had with my stepdad was w- uh, about the matrix in the Christian faith. Remember in the late 90s and early 2000s how fascinated we all were? We pretended there wasn't a bunch of Buddhist and New Age stuff in there because the Christian part of it like, was really easy to converse about, especially the first movie. Then it got kind of went downhill from there. Can we agree on that? It's important that we agree on that before we move on. <laughs> But I enjoyed that movie, and so did my stepdad, and so we would talk about the overlap with the Christian gospel. The books that have been meaningful to you, the pieces of your story, I wonder if you are comfortable thinking about it. I know some of you jump at the chance, and others it makes you really nervous, and the point is not to push past your nervousness, or the, the point is it begins with friendship, and then an invitation, some kind of an invitation. Not... I don't know what that invitation is with your friend. It needs to be in the context of the friendship. Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's coming here. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's go see a movie and have a conversation about it afterwards. Maybe it's a book. My very favorite evangelism story to tell is when I was interning, and I've told this story before, but I like it a lot, so I'm going to tell it again high school senior named Bethany in the church I worked for in Colorado Springs, she had a friend that she longed for her to trust Christ. And she asked her friend what her favorite book was. Remember? I know I've told this story before. Some of you listen to me very carefully. Atlas Shrugged. So she read Atlas Shrugged with her friend. And they got coffee a number of times and talked about it. Then her friend was willing to read the book she wanted to read. Mere Christianity, which is about that big. Atlas Shrugged is about that big. I thought that was a beautiful way of pursuing her friend. So the woman and Jesus have an honest conversation that leads to conviction about the beauty of the human faith of Jesus, face of Jesus and the living water that he, that he offers. And then it moves to evangelism where she goes back to her town and invites them with her to go back to Jesus. And every twist and turn of this story is worth noting. It's remarkable. You know, the disciples, almost everything about this scene would make them unclean. So they're, they're there for two days in a Samaritan village, and they're just like... Because <sighs> they were taught not to associate with Samaritans. They couldn't have touched her water vessel, so what if it, like, tipped over and touched them? They don't know what to do. And they end up spending two days there. It was very uncool to talk to women. So many things about this are remarkable. She brings the whole town. That's another part of the reason that I think this was a woman with relative confidence and strength. How, with her story, could she have convinced the whole town to come out and meet Jesus? I think she had to have some level of respect in the town, even with her story. This month, we're talking uh, specifically about the questions that women asked Jesus. We're going to move at Ash Wednesday to the questions his opponents asked. And the barn is a church that, in terms of the letter of the law, has always had women in every office in the church. We haven't always been consistent about doing that. And as the elders and I studied this the last couple of years, I remember a defense I heard, growing up especially, never, never here, no one here has ever said this to me, But the defense of not letting women lead is if you let women lead, the men will stop leading. (laughs) 
If that's true, we have a much larger problem on our hands. You know what I'm saying? Okay. When we were studying this, I was always moved by the chapters by theologians. But the elders of this church, both last year and the year before, they were more moved by the practical chapters. And the reason is their longing, every elder I've served with here, their longing is for towns to say what they, what they say in verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, practically speaking, if you engage women in every office in the church, then, well, that is your decision. If you choose not to do that, that's the complementarian position, spelled with an E, not an I. I apologize again, my Midwestern accent. I know you're tired of hearing about this. I really want to get the words right, and I feel like I was taught that context is all that matters for E's and I's. Anyway. If you take a complementarian position, which is that men and women have different roles in church, which is of course true in relationship, um, you have to draw a line somewhere, right? I don't, know, I don't know if you guys understand this, but if you decide that women can't have this office, then you have to decide what they can and can't do, whereas with the egalitarian position, they can be in any office of the church. And that's a logical problem that a number of our elders noticed also. Where do we draw the line? And the one of the things that was compelling to me to learn about our elders is not so much their interest in the hermeneutics of this, I loved those chapters, but the practicality of it. Because first of all, you see women lead all throughout Scripture. And second of all, our longing is that the gospel of Jesus be made much of. We long to hear people say, we have heard and we know that this is indeed the Savior. That doesn't end that discussion. I think churches will continue to discuss whether uh, men and women and their, their differences matter the same in marriage as they do in church leadership. That's part of the discussion, too. We read, some, we read a book on this. We read another book that was more from the complementarian position. And then we read an article from a church in Boston that talked about the difference between talking about church leadership and marriage because they're different matters. Anyway. But ultimately, what we long for here at the barn is to do what we can, where we are, with what we have, that women and men profess, we have heard and we know that this is the Savior. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I praise and thank you that you took time to model to this woman and then to your disciples and then to her town the dignity with which you treat all of us, regardless of where we've been or not been, what we have done or not done. Jesus, we praise and thank you that you are always pursuing people to yourself. 
and that the most glorious part of this story is women and men professing faith in you and learning to trust you with their heart and with their decisions. Holy Spirit, we ask that you take this gathering of Christ followers. Give them peace of the living water of being in relationship with you. And then give them guidance from that living water in all of the places we find ourselves in. And then guide us when and where we can to make much of your name. Amen.